Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and first I want to say I'm so glad to be back doing the Loopcast. We had a little summer break, but we're back in business after a short uh, rest, I guess you could say. So it's fantastic to start the shows up again, and I hope you're just as excited to have fantastic shows with fantastic guests to listen to. So I want to introduce our guest for today. We have Yaya Fanusi, and he is going to talk about how to neutralize the jihadist pull. And I wanted to get him on the show because he wrote this fantastic article, which was published, oh, just about a month ago, so July 12th of 2017. And it was in the publication Muslim Matters. And the article is actually titled, the title of this show, so How to Neutralize the Jihadist Pull. And it's a great piece because it comes from the perspective of a Muslim, because Yaya is Muslim. So first of all, I want to welcome you to the show. Uh, Thank you, Chelsea. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks. And for our listeners, Yaya is a former CIA counterterrorism analyst and he is also the Director of Analysis at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies in their Center for Sanctions and Illicit Finance. And we're going to have to have you on the show talking about some of the great reports that you produce from the center as well. Absolutely. Yes, definitely. And also, I don't know about all of you other podcast listeners, but he produces a personal storytelling podcast about his journey to Islam and also working in national security, and it's called Rhythm of Wisdom, and I'm an avid listener of it. He, as I said, is a fantastic storyteller, so if you haven't checked that out, I highly recommend it. We'll definitely post a link so you can know about it. So he just has a really interesting background, and I'm excited to have you on the show today. Well, thank you. Well, I'm I'm excited to be here, and, and I I appreciate that uh, that compliment. And uh, you guys have been doing some great work over the years. So I am I'm in your trail because you guys have I don't know how many episodes. Um, so I'm trying to catch up. Yeah, we were just talking about that before recording, and I think we said that we started in 2012, which is just mind boggling because I don't know where the time went. But um, yeah, it's a yes, lifetime. <laughs> Yes, as my co-producer Sina says, we're like the grandfather of podcasts. (laughs) Maybe the great-grandfather at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So one of the things that I found really interesting about this article, and we also talked about this shortly before recording, is that, you know, we've had a lot of horrible attacks in the last couple of years, and... Every time there's an attack, you always get at least one person, I find, that publicly makes the statement um, that if it is an attack that seems to be related to extremists that, of course, have their own interpretation of Islam, it is not the interpretation of Islam that is a majority or actually, what's the best way to say it? It's a sordid interpretation. But you always have one individual that, at least one, that will do this whole thing about it's the Muslim community and, you know, they need to take responsibility for their people, yada, yada, yada. And I always get very upset when I hear this because how can you place the blame for one individual's actions or a handful of individual's actions on a whole community? And when I read the piece, I kind of had this thought in my mind because you address so many issues. So I just want to ask you to start off with what was the inspiration for actually writing this piece? Okay. Well, um, I think there probably were two parts uh, to that. I mean, one, just in general, I, I felt for a long time that I wanted to sort of speak from the voice of someone who is experiencing these issues or dealing with these issues um, in a personal and a both professional way. So I've, I've, for a while, I've been thinking more about, you know, how could I um, engage the public more, speak from my perspective, someone who worked in counterterrorism. Um, and I haven't done a lot of that publicly in, in writing. I've written a few articles here and there. But so that's sort of been on my mind for a while. And then what happened, I guess the second side of it is, um, I think back in the spring, something that you know didn't hit headlines, but just because I, I, I follow terrorist finance and terrorist designations, it hit me. Uh, there was a designation, a set of designations by U.S. Treasury uh, back in the spring where 
uh, a group of folks who had joined uh, ISIS and maybe a couple others who were designated for their work with um, uh, what used to be called al-Nusra in Syria were designated. And these were all individuals who were uh, either from the West or from countries who um, had more of a pluralistic history or had a more moderate experience uh, or, or environment of Islam, and all these people were designated, about seven, seven, one from Trinidad, one from Sweden, one from uh, a few, several people from the Brits, like um, um, uh, Anjim, uh, gosh, why am I blanking on his name, <laughs> um, uh, Chowdhury, and so I thought, wow, well, you know, this is interesting, you know, this is, yeah, this is a good sign of of um, the issue of radicalization and how it's not just—it's not a phenomenon of the of the Middle East. Um, you know that there are issues, and me as a as a Muslim who was born and raised in the West. Um, you know, I don't have to go into my whole story, but you know, I actually converted to Islam later in college. But as someone who um, knows the the American and the Western Muslim milieu, I felt it was really important to to uh, to speak to that. But the it, it, the the there I think there were two two voices that I I wanted to address and they're the common voices you usually hear speaking about extremism and terrorism and I sort of wanted to to counter them because you know the one voice I think you, the most uh, a popular voice and these voices are are loud but I don't know how credible they are so there's one voice you always hear which is akin to what you were mentioning first Chelsea which is you know they're there's the voice of those who often, when they speak on these issues, it's almost as if they're trying to prove that violence, terrorism, and these types of things are inherent to Islam. That Islam as a belief system is such that it naturally aligns with these things that we're seeing. So there are a lot of assumptions there, right? And they come off in different ways, usually very bombastic um, but, but again, there are assumptions there that, that I don't agree with. Usually they have certain leanings towards Islam and, and see it through a very narrow aperture, right, you know, what Islam is. And then there's another voice that I hear, which is also very prominent, but I, I'm not totally in line with, which is there's a defensive um, viewpoint. Often people who are trying to counter the, that first category but there's an assumption in their argument often, and there's this, there's this narrative that um, – you know, it's almost as if people sometimes are trying to prove that counterterrorism or counterviolence, extremism, or even critiques on the problem of Islamist violence, that any of these um, these comments are intrinsically anti-Islamic and anti-Muslim. Um, that that the idea of having a national concert, uh, national security conversation on these issues is unwarranted, and there's this defensiveness, and you hear it within the Muslim community. A lot because you know elements within the Muslim community are are you know trying to counter what they feel is is an attack on their religion. But this sort of defensiveness, in my mind, gets in the way of uh, of us dealing with these issues, talking about these issues, thinking of solutions, which I'm sure we're we're probably going to get into. Um, and then the other part of it is you know often you know folks on both sides of this uh, divide might not be very conversant with terrorism outside of how the headlines and social media. So you do need people who are you know, sober-minded, who actually look at these issues to speak. And there are voices like that out there. But I also felt that one thing I wanted to bring was uh, to the policy discussion. Often uh, the discussion is very, how would I say, it's, it's um, you know, sort of removed from, you know, removed from, I think, the intimate nature of these issues for a person like me. Um, you know, I'm personally invested in, in this issue. doesn't mean that all I do is think about extremism and terrorism. I couldn't function as a, as a, as a human being if that was the case. But I do know, you know, there are you know, regular folks, there are Muslims who don't really fall into either of those two above narratives. You know, there are people who are, are, are lawyers and doctors and nurses and, and teachers who are concerned about what they see and people doing it in the name of Islam, but they don't agree with the, this this viewpoint that Islam is inherently um, violent, evil, you know, ignorant, you know. And then also there are people like that who 
you know, they're concerned about accusation, unfair accusations and being painted with a broad brush, but they don't want to deny that there's a problem going on, that there are things, there are dynamics that, that Muslims should be concerned about. So, um, so, so I wanted to speak as someone who uh, has dealt with counterterrorism, who is Muslim, I practice it in my daily life. Um, and this is not just a policy discussion for me, but it's something that I have sort of a personal stake in. And it's really a fantastic topic, and it's I like having it from your point of view, because as you said, this is a part of your daily life, and you have a career in counterterrorism as well, so you're almost in a sense bridging two worlds that maybe not always come together, unfortunately. And personally, a lot of my Muslim friends, we've, we've discussed issues along this line, and it's amazing how everybody has a completely different viewpoint on how to tackle this really tough issue. And I think even experts, Mm -hmm. it's really hard to figure out because as you said, extremism, just the word is, is under debate what that actually means. And, you know, extremism doesn't always mean you're going to use violent methods. You could be extreme in viewpoints, but you're not going to go up and take arms. And then there are other individuals that might. So it's Mm -hmm. such a complicated topic and I'm really glad you're here to talk about it. And I'm going to be quoting a lot from your article because you have some really good points. And I I was reading it and I was thinking I need to have him discuss this further. So <laughs> one of the things you mentioned is that countering extremists requires shifting how they think more than what they believe. And while religion is, a, is central to jihadist narrative, culture is way more malleable and can determine how one approaches religion. And I thought that was a very interesting statement and i wanted to hear your viewpoints on that further Hmm, okay yeah well i think that point there is what what i was trying to do is clarify the disconnect that so i like to put it in terms that i think we all could understand so there's this there's really a disconnect between what i'll say is your friendly neighborhood islam your friendly neighborhood muslim which is you know the reality of what we most what most people experience well you know we know Muslims, we interact. I mean, most people, if they look at their daily life and their interaction, um, you know, obviously uh, your interaction with Muslims is like with it is with any other you know, group or religion. Um, so there's this disconnect between that and the turmoil that we're seeing where ex- extremists and, and you know, um, jihadist groups are really using religion and shaping uh, or trying to shape this narrative um, of conflict, of violent conflict with the West, with non-Muslims, um, and it's not just overseas, right? I mean, you know, there are examples of people who take on the, these ideologies here. But so, I guess what I want to clarify is that um, it's really important to see the distinction because um, if we're going to tackle what we believe is a problem, um, you know. I think we have to be efficient and we have to think about, you know, what can you change and what's the real issue? So, perfect example, I mean, there's a, a really quote I, I, uh, that really resonates with me. I, I just read it a, really a few years ago, but it was by, um, you know, a, a, a prominent Muslim American thinker. Um, you may or may not have heard of him, you know, Imam uh, Warth Dean Muhammad, Wallace D. Muhammad, who was a, sort of a pioneering voice in you know, the, the growth of Islam from the 70s up until the early 2000s. And even though he came out of, he came out of the African-American Muslim experience, but was pioneering in the sense of, um, you know, sort of leading this idea of a harmonious American Muslim identity and, and, and an, an American Muslim uh, tradition. And this quote that struck me was um, from the 90s, actually. And so it, it's, he said, I'm a new Muslim. I don't quite identify with the thinking of the Islamic world. I identify with the beliefs of the Islamic world, but not necessarily the thinking of most of the voices that I'm hearing. And that's from 1997. And so basically what that made me think of is, I mean, it sort of hit me. It was like, yes, because I, you know, I personally, I believe in the five pillars of Islam, right? I believe in the oneness of God. I believe in Muhammad as a prophet, as a model. I believe, you know, the belief system of Islam is is universal. So, I mean, uh, for Muslims, in terms of, you know, pretty much the basics of what we believe. So that belief system um, could be this, you know, relatively, you know, is the same whether it's Osama bin Laden 
or if it's um, uh, uh, you know the, the general concept, you know any other Muslim on the street, your your next door neighbor. So the what's the difference? What's the disconnect? It's the thinking, the thinking that comes into play, right, with how you actualize that belief system, how you interpret scripture, how you apply scripture, how you bring faith into your interaction with other Muslims, with people who don't believe, people of other tradition. Um, and so for me, it was, you know, the, to me, that's the, that's the key point. And so yeah, I think even in the article, I mentioned my own experience when I was a young, you know, when I was a college student. Um, I didn't have, I wasn't around a lot of Muslims. I had my own sort of personal engagement with the religion and was, you know, reading and studying. And I was just reading a translation of the Quran on my own. And as I was reading, you know, reading through it, I was getting a lot out of it. I was sort of you know, going through this sort of intellectual and spiritual experience. Um, and in the Quran, yeah, there are voices, there are verses on fighting. There are accounts of, you know, but, you know, but, you know uh, Muhammad and his followers you know, in, in their battles with, with the Meccans. But in my reading, and this was in the you know late nineties. I it never occurred to me as I read you know this verse or that verse that oh I need to go to to Chechnya and you know and start fighting like that never came into play just from my basic engagement with the text with the religious text. So it it showed me that you know there was something else there that influences how people see this religion, how they actualize it. And that's where I think we have to get at, because if you think you're going to you know, change the religious concepts and religious beliefs, you know, that's first of all, it's just going to be harder. And I don't think it's necessary, um, even though some people may say, well, still aren't you, you know, they're sort of intertwined. And yes, I'd agree with that. But um, I think if if we focus on the thinking, if we sort of narrow narrow in on you know issues of critical thinking, how you you know uh, the issues of interpretation, right? These are all things that we can get at more so through culture than an approach where we're saying we need to you know reform Islam. Reform Islam as a religion needs to be you know totally revamped, and there's going to be resist- resistance just practically from that sort of perspective, you know, to, you know to that perspective. Um, and so it's not really a practical way to approach this problem. And I think, you know, focusing on the thinking and reasoning is a much more um, uh, a, a, a safer approach and an approach that you'll be able to do more with. What you just said, it rings very true because in all major religious texts, there are accounts of instances that happened. And like you said, battles, um, different warring tribes and individuals and a lot of it there's always individuals that look at it literally and then there's always individuals that tend to look at it metaphorically and so I think this is always one of those tough subjects and and you do talk about this in the article this concept of literal versus metaphoric chronic interpretation and I really like that because just knowing doing some Islamic studies on, in my own time and, and in my own education, you know, there's a very fine line because sometimes it's also very tricky because it's Quranic interpretation or if it's another, like the Bible, and everyone has their own opinion. So mm-hmm. you walked this fine line in the article, and I, I wanted you to discuss this a bit and your thoughts on it, and, and you did say the inspiration why, but I wanted to get more into that. Well, so on the idea of, I think, literalism, um, the issue of literalism, it's interesting because I would actually say that, you know, my real thought about that issue is really just that we have to be upfront and clear with the idea that everyone, everyone pretty much has a choice in how they view and approach Islam or scripture, right? If we're just not talking about Islam, but, but, you know, there is a choice. And I think, Often the problem comes because we think, well, there is only one way. Um, and this works on both sides. Now, I think I've actually matured over the years. I mean, I'm, you know, I, you know, I think, you know, years ago, I probably would have, you know, even if I wouldn't have said this, I probably would have felt, um, I probably would have believed, well, you know, people should really just interpret the way I interpret because I'm comfortable with the way I interpret Islam. And I think, you know, and the people that I respect interpret it this way and the world would just be better. We wouldn't have these problems if 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 uh, the, the, the quote unquote Muslim world wasn't so literalist. Um, I, 
I don't, I don't really, maybe it's age, but I, I, I've sort of come to the idea that, you know, you can't control people's minds. Um, I, and I don't have the same urge to force my interpretation, even if I crit- criticize literalist interpretations. Um, you know, I'll talk all day long about my interpretation, why I think there's something more and the scripture is deeper than this. But, but, um, but, but here's what I mean when I say I think there's a choice, which is, we just have to be upfront. Let you know, Islam. I mean, Islam is a very dynamic thing. I mean, Islam is a religion that can be viewed in a narrow, literal manner, um, and that that actually can function in certain environments, right? So, I mean, in the world of the you know 1990s Taliban, to them that was Islamic. You know, I may disagree with it. Um, I may think it's an unfitting interpretation for the world that I know, but their reasoning sort of fit their environment and their experience. And I must must note, right, same beliefs, same overall broader beliefs in terms of relationship of man with God, but how they actualize it uh, is is very different. Um, and so I just have to kind of be upfront about that. I mean, if the world was, if we were living in the world where there was a zombie, if we were, if we were living in the world of the, of the Walking Dead, which I don't know if, if you, you know, if you watch the show. Oh, um, yes, I do. <laughs> okay, I used to watch. I didn't really get with the, the most recent season, but um, I mean, you fascinating show, right? And I remember watching that show, and I'm like, man, if the world, you know, this this is a crazy world. This isn't. In this world, in the world of Rick Grimes and and the governor, um, you know, Mullah Omar might have been, <laughs> might have fit in with that environment. You know, Mullah Omar, the, the former leader of the Taliban, yeah. um, right? I mean, just just thinking about this, you know, philosophically. So, in a world where human, there's no democracy and human society has collapsed, um, but in a world of 2017, Washington D.C. in the U.S. in this environment of, of freedom, of industry, of cosmopolitanism, or the Berkeley of 19, you know, the 1990s, where I was going to school, um, you know, it, where it's going to be easier and more necessary to have a more nuanced interpretation uh, or understanding of of the religion. So, so I, I I I try not to be dogmatic in saying. You know, the problem with the Salafi jihadists is they're literalists. I mean, I will say that they're literalists and that is a problem. But the way I try to frame it is, you know, Islam is a big thing. Islam has. And that's the key. It's like everyone is trying to say is no Islam is this. This is the correct way to see Islam. And, you you know, you have to look at the verses all this way. Uh, and, and, you know, that may be the Salafi interpretation. And then there are others who are saying, no, well, Islam is this way. Islam is, is more open and you have to interpret it this way. And I personally fall in line in one direction in terms of my belief and what I think is right. But I think we, we have to just, I think we get rid of the, the, the false dichotomy that, you know, that, excuse me, I, we'd have to get rid of the idea that, you know, People may choose based on the circumstances. We have to understand that. But here's my caution. My caution, even though I said what I said about the Taliban in the 90s um, versus the Berkeley of the 90s, my caution is that there's no longer the ability, if you really look at the world, to maintain the bubble of the Taliban Salafi jihadist interpretations. That's my judgment. That's my analysis. That even in the most remote corner of Afghanistan, there is the Internet. Um, so if you're going to follow these literalist interpretations, you, you're going to become, my judgment is you will be well prepared for a world which no longer exists and you'll continue to have conflict with that world. So Islam, so it's not about me saying, I'm not saying that Islam is about what we want it to be with regards to interpretation. Islam is going to move and it's going to grow. It's a very dynamic thing, right, according to circumstances. But we're seeing problems, I think, because many Muslims... Um, want their approach to stay within this fixed point in time. And then that's, that's where the, the conflict lies, because it just doesn't fit. So how do you deal with that when it comes to the more extremist ideologies that um, are used in the name of Islam, since we do have groups that follow a much more strict interpretation, much more literist, literal, mm-hmm. excuse me, However, mm-hmm. they also use the religion to warp it into their own needs and desires and wants for their their group. So yeah. I feel like that's the tricky thing. It's almost like, actually, in a lot of religions, you have many different forms of 
the one religion. So Christianity, there's all kinds of different interpretations and forms and branches, Catholicism as well, and, and of mm-hmm. course, Islam. So how do you walk that fine line when it comes to the individuals that are just fighting for this literal interpretation and also using it for their own means? Well, you're not going to eliminate all of those interpretations or those people. And I think that the the best that one can do or that as a culture or society or, um, you know, uh, even a sort of a policymaking um, body, the only thing what has to happen, actually, let me cut off the policymaking body. Let me just talk about us socially and as a society and culture. Um, you have to make it inhospitable. You're not going to eliminate those narratives. But, um, and it's not about necessarily countering, countering them tit for tat, which I think, which we can do. But that's not, that's not the key. The key is making it inhospitable for those sentiments and those narratives to latch on and grow. Um, they're going to be there. So why do they, so why, how do you make it inhospitable? Um, it's not all about counter, just countering them. That's a part. But part of it is providing an alternative which resonates, alternative narratives which which resonate. And that, you know, it's like you have to look under the hood and see what's really going on. Like, how is this? Um, I think I pointed, you know, I, I mentioned in my article, it's like the radicalization process is totally complicated. Like everyone, anyone who studied radicalization knows, you know, you, you, there's studies on radicalization and then most scholars come back and say, we don't know how, there's no formula. There is no, the process is very dynamic. There are internal influences, external influ- influences, different people, you know, with the, in the same circumstances will not necessarily follow the same path, right? Many different paths to radicalization. It's, it's complicated. But, um, but the thing is, what's simple is so so radicalization is always probably going to exist in different forms. Um, the, but the problem is that uh, for some reason, this sort of jihadist narrative, jihadist Salafist jihad, uh, narrative, um, is landing. Uh, for a lot of people, and this is becoming their radicalization um, uh, vehicle. Um, so, so how do you make that not happen? By having a culture, having um, references in the minds of people, right, and in their experience, things that they can touch, which demonstrate a very different alternative. So, for example, when I said, like, look, let's look under the hood. So, under the hood of jihadist radicalization and the jihadist narrative is this sense of number one clear mission mission for you know for, you know the the, you know, the glory of muslims nobility doing something which is just honorable high goals i mean deep purpose like this is these are like this very simple um sort of emotive the the, the factors um below right so if there's going to be something that counters that um, the narratives sh- should sort of hinge on some of those same uh, motivating factors, right? So, so uh, m- my thought is that, particularly for young people, right, because young people are often looking for mission. Young people are often very narrowly focused on, you know, right and, r- right and wrong, right, black and white. And, um, you know, th- there's no reason why the idea of a, a, an Islamic mission, you know, can't be something that's at a very high level, the freedom of the mind, the freedom of the intellect, right? These are, these are concepts that you can get out of religious scripture. Um, and, you know, the idea of critical thinking, I mean, if Islam is something which, you know, you know, the jihadists will talk about how their cause is to free humanity and free society uh, from oppression, you know, and the like. Well, that concept can be flipped in a very different way to talk about the freedom of the individual, the freedom um, to think without being clogged by, you know, um, narrow ideas and, and corrupt ideas. I mean, you can craft narratives which are as inspiring, probably more inspiring, 
in, in, in my mind. But there's, I'd say there's less of that. I think what we have when we're thinking about how do we counter these narratives is, and I'm going to be a little, you know, um, a little facetious here. I mean, you know, so we have the jihadists saying, you know, come to this glory. The Muslims are being oppressed. You know, this is what you need. You need to fight like the battle of, uh, you know, to fight like Muhammad fought against the Meccans. You know, these rallying cries. And, yeah, and then they do a suicide bombing or something. And then we have... The, the, the countering, which is terrorism is bad. Don't follow ISIS. Um, you know, it's not, you know, it's, it's a very, the, the message, the counter message is not inspiring. It's just a, it's just a reaction to what others are doing. And then the, 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 the extremists who are using violence, they can point and they can say, look, they just don't want you to do the right thing, but you're going to have to take risks. You have to do. So, so we have to develop narratives, which I think inherently um, feed you know what people what what people are looking for. People look for for mission. People look for purpose, and there's not enough of that. So I don't know if I'm getting a little bit theoretical, but but that's kind of my my sense is that you're not going to you're not going to defeat everyone. That um, you're not going to get rid of those narratives. Um, the world is free. People can say whatever they want to say, but there needs to be more effort in crafting narratives which are inspiring and that resonate with people who are looking for purpose. Being a member of the Muslim community here in in the States, in your opinion, I know this is kind of on the spot, but what might crafting at least one narrative that you've just discussed, what might one of those look like knowing your community and, and seeing what's needed from also knowing the other side of, of, the more um, violent interpretations and, and from groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda? Mm. Um, something simple, right? This is not going to be the end-all be-all, but I'll just, you know, like you said, on the spot, an example. Um, I hope this is not going to sound self-serving. Uh, I'm not talking about me, but I'll just, just, just to, to give you a, a character or, or caricature, right? Um, a... How about a story, film, TV, of a devout practicing Muslim who is uh, in tune with his community, respects his religion, um, loves his religion, and is on the is on the the front line in um, in fighting against. ISIS or you know other similar groups through the counterterrorism um, through the counterterrorism field. So what I'm talking about is something that I don't think really exists in let's say our film or or television in in, in the way that I'm thinking about it. Right? Um, you know, a, a, a narrative where a, a Muslim can see this you know model quote unquote model person who's Muslim. Um, but not doing it in a way, you know, not doing it in a way that a lot of people think. First of all, people just have a very sort of, you know, a narrow view of what does it mean to be in counterterrorism, what the counterterrorism is like, counterterrorism is like. So you kind of have to deal with some of those assumptions, right? I mean, if you have assumptions that, you know, 9-11 was an inside job, that, um, you know, the FBI and CIA are out to to destroy Islam, and that's sort of their operating, um, you know, that's their operating directive. So those assumptions kind of have to be dealt with for this narrative to be understood. But I actually think, you know, one of the ways you, you um, undercut these narratives is you actually show what it is like or what it could be like for someone to fulfill that role. Um, so, because when people think about counterterrorism, even though, even though factually Muslims are on the front lines, if you if you go to you know Iraq and you know you, you look at those who are who are actually fighting and losing their lives, right? This is a Muslim story, but for some reason that very true um, experience isn't reflected in what people think of when they think about, you know, the war against ISIS. We don't even see that. 
um, you know, unless you're there and you're really involved like day to day. So right there, there's a disconnect. So just the fact that we don't have a very clear sense of, of what it means to, to, to be Muslim and working in counterterrorism, I mean, that right there could be a story that would give someone another reference point. Because, yeah, a lot of people, that's not going to fit. A lot of people are going to be like, yeah, they feel the U.S. is evil, the West is evil, uh, the CIA is nothing but, but, but evil stuff. Like, there are people that that's just what they're going to believe, Right. Um, you're not going to change people's, everyone's mind. But what I do know is that you have people who are kind of, you know, the, as they grow, they're, they're trying to figure out what's what in the world. And if they don't have a picture of something um, uh, that, that is an alternative, there'll be, it'll be more difficult for them, I'm sorry, it'll be easier for them to latch on to the jihadist narrative. So, I mean, that's, that, that's, that's one. I mean, it doesn't have to be about counterterrorism. Um, you know, there are other ways of, of demonstrating culture, Islamic culture. I mean, you, you mentioned here in the United States. Oh, I've got a good example. So, um, so even here in the United States, so what are people doing with, with Muslim culture? There, so I, I, there's a woman, um, uh, an African-American Muslim woman who's like second generation Muslim. She didn't convert. Um, her parents, you know, came to Islam in the, probably in the sixties or fifties. And she here in the DC area came out with an album. Uh, she's a singer. She's basically, she's a singer and she came out with an album which takes, um, Quranic verses, studies the verses. So this is like from a, as a religious student, a student of, of Quranic Arabic, she takes the, um, she takes those verses, interprets them in terms of how do they mean, what do they mean for her experience here in the United States? What do they mean for her community? And then she creates songs based on those verses, you know, songs with her own lyrics, but are inspired by, by the Quranic message. And this is, so if you, so her name is Namat, um, um, you know, so, so she just came out with an album and it's like a slice of like unique Muslim American culture. It speaks on so many levels. It's not about terrorism. It's not about extremism at all. Right. That's not her. That's not her thing. She's just talking about life, but she's doing it from a, from an Islamic perspective and she's fitting in. She's, she's doing this as part of the culture of the United States. Um, uh, you know, so that's just an example. I think that's what I would point more to. I mean, in the policy environment, we talk so much. Of, we talk about CVE and countering radicalization as if it's going to happen um, on, on, a, on a panel, you know, on a panel discussion or, or something. I mean, it's not going to happen. Policymakers are not the ones who are going to create these shifts, who are going to who are going to provide the alternatives because that's not how culture works. And one, you know, one thing that, that I'll, I'll say, I mean, my example for what a, uh, how, how people should understand, like tackling radicalization, it's akin to, you know, what would be necessary if you wanted for the government. So what would the government need to do if it wanted to make people have a better sense of humor? That's what that's what like a public policy um, uh, uh, a strategy for battling radicalization would be. It's it's going to be very difficult. It's going to be very messy. Government the, the policymakers are not really geared to do that. We're talking about a social phenomenon, a cultural phenomenon that um, is going to take people who are creatives and Muslim artists, you know, artists, creatives, you know, are you know people who engage with. Um, how people learn through media, through culture. Like, that's really, I think, where the, the front of this, uh, you know, of this engagement is going to be. Um, so, so, um, so again, maybe let me, let me stop there because I could probably go for, go for hours. But I think there are lots of examples. We just have to think of them outside of the context of um, what policymakers are usually thinking of. And we need to think about well, how does how do you shape culture in general? If we can if we can take our playbook out of that, then that would help us deal with what is what is definitely a, a cultural, social phenomenon, a psychological phenomenon. We have to use the the tools and the techniques that come out of that world to address this issue. I love the examples that you presented with the story of a Muslim individual involved in 
countering violent extremism or terrorism, however you want to term it. And as well, the singer that you mentioned, that sounds really fantastic. I'm going to actually have to look for her work. <laughs> I'll the, send you a link. <laughs> well, that would be lovely. The yeah. one thing that comes to mind, though, and, and how do you bridge that gap with someone that might be playing around is not the right term, but exploring mm-hmm. Islam and they're getting completely different interpretations, more of the softer side, the cultural aspects, um, more of the the sides you've mentioned versus the sides of groups. So, so like mm-hmm. ISIS and other groups and organizations that try to recruit and radicalize where they would hear your examples or the artist and immediately just say the two of you are unbelievers and and it's this that ideology how do you deal with it where there's it's it's like an us versus Mm. them and and if someone is leaning towards more of the radical isis version of of the ideology how do you bring that person back well you 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 know part of this chelsea is um, like I say, some of this for me is like comes with age is just for me acknowledging that we're not going to get everyone. Um, and I know I, 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 what, so my thought is, um, so they're going to be, the, the issue is, so everyone has a choice. And my concern is that um, the, the positive that, you, like, like you mentioned, right, there's the positive, there's the softer, there's the more, the deeper, more spiritual. Um, it's out there, but in my, in the way I understand, the way I see what, what I see in the media, the dialogue, I don't see it as prominently discussed or displayed. Um, you know, if, so I'd be happy for there to be like this, this great new, you know, James Bond type, not James Bond, because James Bond wouldn't be the best example, but like, you know, this like Muslim, you know, secret agent, but he's like, because, you know, for example, I remember, I don't know if you, if you all remember that uh, the TV show a few years ago, it was, I think it was on Showtime called Sleeper Cell. Um, and it was about like a Muslim convert and he was like working with, from the FBI undercover, um, you know, it was an okay show. It wasn't really, eh, it was okay. It was Michael Ely, kind of Michael Ely's first, um, first big role. And, but the biggest, one of the biggest problems I had with that show, though it had a great idea, which is kind of what I'm saying, right? A Muslim who's like working as a counterterrorism agent. But when I watched the, the show, I mean, he's like, he's, you know, from a Muslim's perspective, it's like, he, he's not a role model, really. You know, I won't go into all the details, but it's like, if you were like someone who wants to see, a like a Muslim doing something good from a Muslim sort of moral perspective or whatever, you know, and you know he, he he's not someone you would look up to at least his I mean his character in in the show. So so like I would love to for there to be a you know a great you know this Muslim role model. He's like you know fighting terrorists. He you know he goes home and he prays. He's with his he's a family man. You know he's you know he's not a you know he's not a you know womanizer he he's he's you know in in muslim terms sort of morally and ethically in tune with the sort of the broader muslim um way of life and he's taking on these extremists who are clearly warping the religion and and being driven by other other motives um and he's fighting against that i would like for that just to exist and it'd be okay for it's okay that you know out of the 10 people the 10 potential people who might be radicalized, right, that um, four of them are going to be like, nah, I'm not with that. I'm more with ISIS. That'd be, that'd be fine. I mean, that's, so, that's cool. That's like the 60% success rate. I mean, but it's like, so we're not going to get everybody. Or maybe even if it's, even if it's 50-50, 50-50. And, and there's not going to be some, I'm not saying that there's like a silver bullet movie. Once it comes out, all the Muslims are going to be like waving flags and nobody's going to join ISIS because now Muslims are represented in Hollywood. I'm not saying it's simple like that. I'm just saying that, my goodness, like, let's create some of this. Let's have this so that people could debate and people could say, because my thing is, so, for example, when I became a counterterrorism analyst, this is why I realized just not having, just not being able to point to someone in this realm is a big issue and is a big hurdle. Because, so I, I was a, I mean, this is, you know, I've, I've, I've um, you know, shared this before. So I, you know, when I joined the agency, I was I was not a counterterrorism analyst. I was an economic analyst. 
Um, and then later, as I, for a lot of reasons, I decided, hey, I want to do counterterrorism because I want to deal with this issue. And I think I could bring something to the, to, you know, to help this fight and this effort. And I remember when I, you know, I didn't tell, obviously I didn't broadcast my employment to everyone that I knew. But I remember even when I told some people, you know, I remember one conversation where I told someone, you know, hey, I was, I was going to start doing counterterrorism. And, you know, my, uh, my friend who I told this to, um, you know, I mean, when we came down to it, you know, <laughs> you know, there was a lot of doubt. And this was an educated person, right? There was a lot of doubt from his mind that 9-11 actually was committed by, like, Arabs or by al-Qaeda. And I had to kind of just say to him, like, no, that, this, is, this stuff is real. This is not, like, some made-up, like, this... This, Al-Qaeda is real. This was bef- way before ISIS. This was, you know, several, several years ago. Um, but what did it teach me? It taught me. And then so, but, but by knowing me and knowing that, you know, he knew me before I joined the agency, before I got into Intel. So he knew who I was as his Muslim brother, right? And to know that I was now working in a role where I was going to be, you know, as an analyst, I was going to be working against Al-Qaeda, um, I think that did a lot for him and for others um, to at least have a reference point that, oh, you mean, you know, so terrorism is not just about what I hear uh, on the pundits on CNN or Fox or MSNBC. It's not just that bantering that's going on. Like, this is something that, that's, that's real that Muslims are a part of, can be a part of. So that's what I mean. Like, we don't even have that reference point. And I have, you know, for obvious reasons, when you're in the intelligence community, you're not, you know, you're not broadcasting what you do, your employment in, in many cases. Uh, and if you're Muslim, doubly, <laughs> you're, you're not, you know, you're not telling people uh, probably for a lot of reasons. But my point is that um, everyone's not going to be able to do that. But there, I think there should be more exposure to Muslims in this role, so that then when the next ISIS, uh, Rumia, whatever, you know, then their next, uh, when their next magazine comes out, right, they have this very glossy magazine with all these these arguments, um, but at least there will be in the back of people's minds an alternative vision about what this struggle is. And, and that's my thing. So I have no... Um, you know, I have no assumption that that um, there's going to be anything anyone's going to do to to get all the people who believe the jihadist narratives. It's not going to happen. I think we have to accept it and just allow there to be more alternatives and then promote those within our culture. How do we apply your ideas in our current political environment where... Mm. The nuance of CVE is really, at this point, not a preferred method by especially the administration and its supporters. There's been a lot of negative portrayals of Muslims and negative portrayals of foreigners coming to our country and people seeking out uh, asylum and refugees and so forth. So how do we deal with such an important issue when we're also dealing with an important issue that a lot of the mechanisms of our country have drastically changed in a short period of time. Well, um, you know, I, there, there may be two parts to that question. The first part is the whole CVE thing. I mean, I don't think, you know, you know, I, I, I knew, I know people who were working the CVE in, in government across administrations from Bush to Obama to, you know, uh, now um, uh, Trump. And, you know, the first thing, there are two, right? The first thing is, I think within the Muslim community, there's almost this need to detach the with CVE for lack of a better term, right? But just the interest of um, you know um, decreasing radicalization and, and 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 stemming the tide of people moving to want wanting to kill people um, for these sort of you know for, for 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 these sorts of reasons. There's a there's a need to do that, um, and 
and and we have to be careful about um, always linking that interest to the politicians. So when I got into counterterrorism, I learned something, and I saw that most of the most of the people in my community, or just in the public, how they understand either CVE or terrorism, counterterrorism. It's usually because of what they hear from either someone who needs ratings or who needs votes. And my sense is you have to really separate. That's not where we should be getting our that's not where you should be paying attention to in terms of what happens on terrorism or what that those sources, people who want ratings and people who want votes they often, from being within the, the government myself and being a civil servant and working these issues, I found that those, uh, the, the polemics that usually came out of those sources often clouded the, the real issue. So I think, so now there's a bigger issue because, you know, there, there, there's more polarization. Um, um, CVE is an issue that's, uh, that the administration is, you know, doesn't see eye to eye with, you know, in terms of how it was perceived before. There's a lot of conflict. But here's the other part of it, though. The other part of this is um, kind of what I was saying, you know, b- before that, uh, you know, there's the, this this effort is not going to be done by um, policymakers. So, so I'm I'm not necessarily happy that you know CV. Like I know a lot of the good work that the CVE folks were doing. A lot of people in the Muslim community are very antagonistic to CVE um, from the government or CVE program, the CVE that DHS w- was doing. Right, a lot of loud voices against it. Um, as someone who knows, so first of all, I don't think people were actually understood. I think people sort of conflate people outside who don't understand how the government works on the inside often conflate. Um, uh, um, bad things that they think you know they, they they think go on with what the government is doing. There are a lot of assumptions, a lot of conspiracy theories, even, and so people don't even have a, a clear sense of what CVE is. What really the government? What I witnessed was the government wanting to engage, wanting to provide a platform. The government just not wanting to be the enemy and wanting to outreach uh, to to reach out to people. Um, so so you know so so the effort was was a positive effort. But that said, at the end of the day, honestly, you know, it's going, these things are going to be addressed no matter who's in, you know, no, no matter what the government is doing, these issues have to be addressed. So I don't know. I mean, I feel like maybe, maybe I'm not precisely getting at, at your question um, and clarify if not, but I, I just think there's an over uh, emphasis on what the government does. And then depending on what the government does, that sort of impacts what people think they should be doing. And I'm, my sense is like, that's not even how we should be thinking, right? If, if someone, if, if we're focusing on some politician who makes a, a, um, you know, inflammatory statement, and then that's what we rally around. And that's what determines how we're going to deal with the issue of terrorism. We're going to be chasing our tails, just dealing with inflammatory you know, so uh, different view. I actually try to not um, put too much energy because to me it's just uh, somewhat of a distraction. So uh, let me stop here because I don't want to 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 get off into a, a rant at all. But um, but that's that's sort of kind of how I see that issue. No, I completely understand what you're saying, and it makes it makes sense. So we like to give our guests, and you're a new guest, so. I will fill you in that when we have a moment to conclude the show, we like to give our guests the time to maybe touch upon something that we might not have touched upon or if there's something that you just feel like you need to say. So I wanted to hand the floor over to you and give you that opportunity. Hmm. Um, I guess what I'd say is that, um, hmm. Well, I think this I, I kind of make this point in um, in my article, and so maybe I should emphasize it here. Um, two things: 
I'll never forget when I converted. Um, I don't remember where I heard the quote, but someone said this quote to me, and it really resonated, especially in my first several years of, after converting. They said, you know, thank God I knew Islam before I knew Muslims. And um, the reason why it resonated with me is because of the way I personally felt I engaged the religion, which was kind of like, you know, sort of solitary in the first, in the beginning, um, just sort of exploring, exploring it for myself. And then later, you know, after converting, after be, you know, get sort of getting more acclimated, I kind of started to see things that 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 I felt were more cultural or just were, you know, the issue of thinking, right? How did people reason and how did they interpret and actualize these, these concepts? And, um, and so I, I think that the point there is that religion is very simple. Um, but people in no way across religions, people aren't programmed by scripture. That's not the way the human beings work. So, um, you know, culture is what, tells us how we engage the, our religion. It tells us what's possible, what's appropriate. Um, and culture, the good thing is culture is malleable. And for me, that that brings hope. Because I know that um, if I, you know, in a very, you know, I was educated, but I wasn't educated in Islam, right? I just in a very simple, like, being exposed to, to, to that religion on my own, if I was able to just have very clear, what I felt were clear ideas of what the religion was, then to me that means it's it would be simple for, for others. And I don't have to like feel like, oh my goodness, ISIS is out there and ISIS is so bad and they're warping our religion and oh you know, like that's no, it's simpler than that. And it's and and if I were to get caught up in what ISIS in ISIS's narrative, um you know, I might lose sight of that. So I just say that's my personal personal thing that with with the huge amount of attention that ISIS and Al-Qaeda and other jihadist groups, with the amount of attention they get, it's important to remember um, the simplicity of, uh, you know, of, of the faith. And so that's sort of a personal thing for me. And the other thing I'll say is, you know, you asked about the narrative of, you know, like what the jihadists say. And, you know, it's interesting because, right, in the Muslim experience, there was, there was persecution, there was, you know, early discrimination and persecution and a lot of violence at Muslims. Um, and it's that, that's the, the, that's the simile, right? People will try to say that this is like, that that, uh, that what's happening now is like what happened back then. And there are a couple of ways to deal with that. I mean, you can do the tit for tat and explain why, and I think that's that that's fine. Um, but if someone were to say, "Well, hey, well, Muslims are demonstrated di- dimis- di- uh, discriminated um, today, right?" If you know, I if they were to say that to me, I would say, "Well, you know what? I'm glad." So if they were to say that that's what's happening here in the United States, Muslims are discriminated against because of what's happening with the politicians and because there's the Muslim ban and blah blah blah. I would say, you know what? I'm glad you're saying this to an African American, <laughs> an African American Muslim, right? Because my community, right, that I came out of. I mean, my father was from West Africa, but my mother's African American, right? And I was born and raised here, so I come from a legacy of, you know, history of enslavement, of brutal attacks, legal, legal, legally being kept out of the educational, social, economic institutions for 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 generations. Um, so, so that's discrimination is not some some brand new thing, and I would even say that the discrimination that people are talking about um, is is not akin to what 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 we have faced. So we just had a, a, an African American president who served two terms, and African American Muslims were the first Muslims to serve as representatives in Congress. For me, there's a lesson there, right? So, so for people to say, like, to just paint over the, like, I, I think if people try to say that, they don't understand America. And of course, I'm just speaking right now of America, and we could say more about, you know, what's happening in Europe and in other places, but just for the American context, um, I think if people understood America better, um, we could sort of nullify a lot of these knee-jerk 
you know, and these knee-jerk reactions or narratives about what is the state of Islam in the United States today. So with that, um, I think those are, I guess, my closing thoughts. Oh, so I guess the one thing I would mention is um, my podcast, Rhythm of Wisdom, which I know I mentioned at the top of the of our interview. And I think the thing I'll say is that, you know, I do hope folks will check it out because that for me, it's a personal storytelling podcast. And I put it together simply because I felt like a lot of what I'm talking about, you know, the idea of there being the, uh, the, 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 the story or, you know, for their, the, the, the idea of there being exposure uh, to voices like mine, people like mine, people who've had experience in counterterrorism, who are Muslim, who, you know, and, and that Islam in America has this very dynamic experience. If I'm not going to see it in Hollywood or, or on CNN or wherever, then I'm going to create it. I'm going to just do it myself so that, you know, put out there what I, what I think is missing, a voice that's missing. And so it's a very, you know, it's a real, a, a personal, um, you know, mission of mine really. Uh, so, so I do hope that folks will, um, will check it out and, and give feedback. Yes. And I it. second, I second that because, <laughs> um, it's great. And I'm glad you have that mindset about if you don't see it, you'll create it because that's what our world needs. So it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Thank, thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. And for our listeners, if you want to deep in, d- excuse me, dive deeper into this topic, I really recommend that you read the article which we will post with the show, so How to Neutralize the Jihadist Pull. And I just want to thank you, Yaya, for coming on the show and being a part of the Loopcast. Thank you so much, Chelsea. You're doing great work. Uh, I appreciate your show and what you all are doing, and thank you for inviting me here. I really, really, uh, really enjoyed it. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. <laughs>